Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Spring is calling and Target's ready with deals for your outdoor space. Grab miracle Grow Potting Mix on sale at two for $8. Plus get 20% off planters and more. Find spring's best outdoor buys at Target, where low prices and great deals make it easy to save. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. Presented by Visit Arizona. Plan on going to spring training down in Glendale? Make sure your first stop is at visitarizona.com slash spring training. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's January 10th. 2019 as we record this podcast and this time we actually have player transactions to talk about the Chicago White Sox signed two players this week former nightmare of a reliever for the Kansas City Royals Kelvin Herrera is now with the White Sox and outfielder slash Manny Machado's best friend John Jay We'll break down those moves in a moment, but of course, we'll also discuss the latest rumors about Manny Machado and the White Sox pursuit later in the show. First, let's talk about the new faces joining the Chicago White Sox and to help us understand the motives from Rick Hahn in signing both Kelvin Herrera and John Jay is the Chicago White Sox beat reporter for The Athletic and making his second appearance on the show, which officially makes him a friend of the podcast. (laughs) It's James Fegan. Hello, James. Thanks for coming on the show again. It's great to make new friends. (laughs) It is. And... Uh, we are so happy because there was actually activity, legit activity for the White Sox during this offseason. But I have to ask you, for a beat reporter, how has this offseason been for you? Did you catch up on vacation time, rest? Have you ignored Twitter for weeks on end? Um, <laughs> I literally like had a discussion with my job about what defines PTO when you're a beat writer because you're never actually like turn your brain off. So uh, that probably indicates it's been moderately busy. I think, you know, compared to the last two years, I I guess it's an oxymoron to say that they've been quietly busy, but like there's been a bunch compared to like the depths of rebuilding. There's been, you know, legit 
major league additions that kind of reshape how you view the roster more this year. There's not like a big ticket item and I kind of, kind of can see how like every little move could go wrong, but you know, it, it seems like they're actively improving the team, which is a weird spot to be in given that the rebuild is still very much on. And one of those moves is signing Kelvin Herrera. I like this move for the White Sox. It's a two year, $18 million deal on the surface, but there is a vesting option for a third year if Herrera appears in 110 games in 2019 and 2020. That's combined, not appear in 110 games uh, each season. Uh, James, the White Sox have already traded for Alex Colomay, and they already have some intriguing arms for the bullpen. Why do you think the White Sox targeted and signed Herrera? Uh, I'm trying to imagine a pitcher like against his own interest, trying to get into 110 games just so his optional vest, even though his arm is like dragging and <laughs> on his side. <laughs> uh, you know, I think Herrera, you know, beyond just being a guy they got to see, you know, uh, kick their teeth in from Kansas City for five, six years, he kind of is similar to Column A where you're paying someone with, I guess, to a degree, closer upside or closer experience without playing you know, closer market prices like, say, what Kenley Johnson got in free agency a year or two ago or, or Olus Chapman. Now they have, you know, you don't want to just have one of those guys and rely on them to basically be, take this leap forward that you haven't seen before in their career and just own the ninth and be an elite closer. But now between them and, you know, probably not seeing a ton of Nate Jones at this point in the ninth inning next year, you kind of have multiple guys who have legit late inning pedigree and, you know, just two years ago, Kelvin Herrera was, you know, striking out at a 30% rate, and he's always had, you know, absolute top-tier velocity. And, you know, even seemingly a downside is probably a competent reliever. Uh, at the same time, you know, all the indicators are with his, uh, you know, whiff rate and, and velocity and have kind of been on the downtrend the last two years, and you're hoping that you can basically explain it away with he was hurt last year and he's healthy now. I mentioned the vesting option because of the 55 games in 2019 do you think that would be a stretch depending on Herrera's health? And what is Herrera's health-wise or his status on his health? Are there any lingering issues that could impact spring training for Kelvin Herrera? From the way they couched it today and with Rick Hahn and the way Kelvin talked about it yesterday, it sounds like the most likely scenario for how we'd see that is just being behind in his throwing program as opposed to being like inactive or anything like that and them determining that he's not all the way – back to full strength or all the way ready for opening day and him missing maybe the first week or two of the season. Um, I don't, well, it was kind of ambiguous how, what Han meant when he said, you know, that he's, uh, it's not a long-term thing. I assume that just means that they don't expect a recurrence of the list Frank issue this season, but it does seem like that it could affect his schedule as far as just like, you know, being where an athlete usually is on their their throwing program when they come to spring training and being behind that, thus doing more rudimentary stuff and maybe not getting into Cactus League action at the same timeline as everyone else, kind of the way maybe, you know, Bruce Rondon was from last year, given the fact that he had visa issues and kind of showed up late to camp, something like that. Do you think it could impact when we see Herrera appear in games in the regular season for the White Sox or... Are you getting the feeling that, no, this is just maybe impacting how much we see of him in spring training and all likelihood he should be ready to go by the regular season? Oh, I, I think he could probably start the season on a rehab stint in, in Charlotte or something like that or, or be a week behind as far as joining the open day roster. That, that seemed like a, a possibility they're allowing for, and, and that lines up with what uh, I think uh, Rob Bradford from WEI was reporting back in December 
they're checking on his rehab schedule that, you know, he might be more mid-April than opening day. And, you know, in that case, it's probably, you know, could further cement the White Sox getting off to a slow start to kind of, uh, you know, keeps them from being a surprise, you know, 80-something win team as between waiting for Herrera and waiting for whatever stalls Eloy from starting with the Major League team. It, it, it could be something that we, we are making a much bigger deal of uh, in the first week of April than we are right now. Well, hopefully he is healthy enough to be with the White Sox on opening day, but it's not the end of the world if he doesn't join into mid-April. There's still plenty of baseball for Herrera to be involved with. With the signing of Herrera and in the offseason training for Alex Colomay, James, is the White Sox bullpen at the moment the team's greatest strength heading into 2019? Uh, I mean, I guess there's an argument for it just because the rotation is so unproven and you know the lineup is probably still... Uh, coming into focus. I mean, yeah, I guess you could make that case. Um, so I don't, I don't see it as like a really like big time plus unit or a shutdown unit. I think, I think looking more at it, that's fine. It's where you would hope it would be. I don't see like the elite closer or the elite like eighth inning, you know, Andrew Miller type from two or three years ago, someone who's just like this absolute shutdown uh, Swiss Army knife out of the bullpen that makes it truly like exceptional or can really shorten games. You kind of just have guys in the role you'd want them to be in. You wouldn't want Nate Jones to be your your best relief arm like he was, you know, kind of coming into last year. You want him to be more the two three guy. I don't think you necessarily want Colome or Herrera to be your absolute best reliever, but you know, them just kind of sharing that load is acceptable. And uh, you know, having Jace Fry as something someone more you can focus on lefties and him being a killer on that is probably the best role for him now. He can prove to be worth more and. Juan Manaya, I think, you know, as stuff-wise, was probably as good as any right-hander they had down the stretch last year. That's probably not the best role for Juan Manaya. Fourth-best righty is probably, you know, just where you want him. And then you have a, a group of guys with Hamilton and Birdie and, you know, throwing in Ryan Burr, even with that. Uh, you know, a lot of guys who could be good, and, you know, if they do kind of make this big jump uh, in their performance, the way kind of Hamilton did from, say, 27 to 2018, he makes it similar kind of like, jump forward, uh, becoming immediately effective rookie in 2019. Yeah, it could be a really good unit, but I, I think that we've seen a couple of guys, Hamilton included, and Fry in 2017, that that kind of thing doesn't happen right away, even though as we kind of think of relievers being plug-and-play and their stuff kind of immediately playing, it, it, it seems like they do need a transition year or some time to actually adjust to big league pitching. And with that, I wouldn't say it's a given that they're necessarily going to be plus, but they have the potential to be, and I think I'm a lot more comfortable seeing that bullpen is being solid with them being kind of non-essential guys. Like you don't necessarily need Ian Hamilton to strike out Jason Kipnis to lock down a ninth inning win with the bases loaded like he did last year. That's probably not the best role for him at this point with his experience, but having him be a guy who throws hard, who is your fifth or sixth, you know, right-hander out of the bullpen, that's probably more comfortable. One possible strength for the White Sox in 2019. Let's move over to what still I think is perhaps the biggest weakness for the White Sox. In 2019, despite the signing of John Jay, and that's the outfield. The Chicago White Sox outfield in 2018, according to Fangraphs.com, had the wit- the worst war as a unit. They were negative .6 war last year. And signing John Jay to a one-year, $4 million deal, I think could help the White Sox not be a negative war unit. Uh, but James, you know, Rick Hahn said that the White Sox have targeted Jay over the years, and this is a signing that's not about trying to lure another player, wink, wink. 
Uh, if that is truly the case, and this is not for recruiting efforts, this is actually for baseball reasons on why the White Sox signed John Jay. Let's be positive because that's one of the goals for me in 2019. Be more positive. What are the benefits of the White Sox obtaining John Jay? Um, most directly, probably taking the bat out of the hands of Adam Engel against right-handed pitching uh, a bit more. Um, I don't think, I mean, at 34 years of age and always being a guy who is probably more speed than routes, that him in center field is, is optimal, but you can probably help a bit of the matchups. That you, you basically have two things with him. You can match up Adam Engel out of some more, you know, tough at-bats against right-handers where he's a little overmatched, and you can save your right field defense from what you're going to get from, say, Palka and and Nick Delmonico. Um, but you're not going to necessarily be able to do both at the same time, and you're probably giving a little bit away on defense when you have him in center, and you're giving a little away uh, from thump uh, from offense when you have him in right. So it, it, it helps. It kind of shores up some of the – you know, most embarrassing elements of the outfield performance from last year, but it's not like a, a conclusive fix either way. And, you know, kind of looking at their outfield behind just to, you know, plugging Eloy Jimenez in left field every single day, no matter what, you kind of have an outfield that's sort of weird matchup-wise with the, you know, you kind of have a right-hander in Adam Engel who's not seen as, you know, a great hitter. You have a switcher in Lurie Garcia who you're not really sure what you're, you're getting from. He kind of struggled last year, and then you have a bunch of guys – between Delmonico and Palka and Jay, where, you know, if you really had your druthers, you, oh God, I'm getting Han speak now. But if you, if <laughs> you had the way you want, you probably wouldn't send them out against left-handers as much as you will, and uh, much as you, you have to at this current setup. And, you know, I don't really see a quick way to fix it. And, you know, acquiring somebody who's just a right-hander who only hits left-handers, you know, there's not like a big need to add Diane Viciedo back to this team. It's not really a, an attractive piece to, to add, but it is something that's kind of lacking just from not having a, you know, an Avisail Garcia that you had, you know, the last you know five years of our lives. Um, but that, that said, you know, necessarily paying a raise on Avisail Garcia to just fill that little need, fill that little gap in what the current setup is, is not really a solution because ideally you have a year from now, something more appealing in an everyday right field or everyday center field where you don't need to be, you know, shifting over the entire lineup for, for platoon splits the way you kind of have to now. Yeah, hopefully Luis Robert has a great year in Birmingham, right? That could help start painting a picture that he could help out in center field. And you're right, James, that help is on the way. But with John Jay, okay, I was positive listeners now i'm going to be realistic you mentioned jay is turning 34 this year he wasn't very good with the arizona diamondbacks in the second half james he hit 235 with a 304 on base percentage and he slugged 325 it's 320 plate appearances over 84 games i know those that like john jay will scream small sample size but james as you know it's always hard to pinpoint when regression will kick in especially for a player going out of its prime as far as in the aging curve where John Jay is. And I know what his career numbers say, but do you think that Jay still has it in him as a player to be more like when he was with the Cubs, very effective in 2017, than the player that we saw with Arizona last year? Um, I guess I'd see some potential to be a little bit what he was with the Royals last year, which is, you know, not any really any power, but good OBP and, you know, maybe he... Just having somebody who gets on at a 340, 350 rate 
will be somewhat of a mild revelation for this batting order uh, for the leadoff slot. And I, I know it's it's weird to kind of pencil him in from a leadoff slot. It's not how you envision doing it on a long-term basis, but probably just given how much this team struggled to get on base last year, I'd probably look at him as maybe being the best option they have against the right-handed starter, which is weird to say and definitely temporary. And obviously it's got to be a, a one-term situation, but I, if it, just purely from an aesthetic standpoint, I think he'd help and just that they won't lead, set a new baseball all-time record in strikeouts this year with John Jay and Yonder Alonso in the lineup. That's probably not an important long-term goal, but it, it, it'll be one people will probably enjoy over the course of, of six months. Yes. Yeah, it would be much more enjoyable uh, to see that. And I think you are right that at the beginning of the season, I wouldn't be surprised if John Jay is the leadoff hitter. And if he is more like he was with the Royals and the Cubs, as you mentioned, that will provide an offensive boost. But if he's more like the player with the Arizona Diamondbacks, it'll be more of the same for the White Sox. All right, so those are the two moves that actually happened. What is coming down the pipeline? Rick Hahn on the conference call alluded to the fact that he may be interested in obtaining another starting pitcher, James. And he did talk about some internal solutions. I wrote about this on SoxMachine.com. You have Manny Banuelos that the White Sox acquired in the offseason. You still have Dylan Covey, who's on the 40-man rotation, who made some starts and at times looked good and a majority of the times did not look good as a starter. What do you think the White Sox do here with the starting staff? And if they do try to go and sign another free agent or maybe make another trade, are there any targets that you can think of that could be good fits for the White Sox? Well, back in winter meetings, Han did seem to kind of rule out the idea of a free agent starter, like a you know something big like a Dallas Keuchel or a you know he, he tagged it more as like they're looking for a trade in a similar setup with Ivan Nova, where they're kind of eating salary from another team or that they'd pick up an NRI and do another kind of reclamation project, which is a little bit similar to what Manny Benuelos already kind of is. And I think Benuelos is just someone with, you know, he, he kind of probably has razor-thin margins. It's probably needing to be really fine with his command to have a success on a given day and probably a helpful matchup as far as, like, facing a lot of lefties would, would help his success and probably not someone you just want to, like, trot out every five days just, like, without any interruption. So I think it'd be something more like a, a a trade and, you know, kind of, I was actually talking about the scout the other day that, you know, something that might make sense of them is kind of, it might not necessarily be something that develops this, you know, the next, you know, six weeks before spring training, but maybe some teams that haven't really committed necessarily to, to, to selling yet, even though that probably looks likely for them. I, don't know, I was thinking like the Diamondbacks or the Pirates again, like Robbie Ray with having another year of control in 2020, if they really liked him or they had a lot of faith that they could sharpen up the control, that seems like something that might make sense for them uh, for a team that with the Dimebacks that's really just looking to cut salary above anything else as far as you know prospect return. I'm sure they'd require a little something like on the house call level, but that was something I was thinking over the other day. Um, it seems like they're they're moderately comfortable with the idea, you know, of just kind of going in uh, with the group they have. It did seem like the there was kind of a pregnant pause from Han as he was trying to assess Phil and Kobe's 2018 in a positive way since the way it went over the last like six weeks really didn't offer much room for that. But mm-hmm. I think if they really land a Machado uh, or that basically that's really what we're looking at right now since the, the price talk has cooled down, that it would probably be a lot better to 
not be doing stuff that a rebuilding team would do, which is kind of lending the entire uh, slot in the rotation kind of up for grabs from organizational depth, but actually really having someone committed and slid in there. Well, my opinion is it would be nice to see Gio Gonzalez actually pitch in a White Sox uniform. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh that that's my pick but again as you mentioned um from the han conference call a lot of those things do make sense on the direction that the white Sox could go as far as starting pitching before we let you go you mentioned his name machado 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 what do you think james what what do you think about these latest rumors when you read it on twitter and you hear it through the grapevine on the white Sox pursuit of manny machado i mean they're still in and you know they've been I don't know, man. I mean, no one really knows. Like, I'll ask Ken Rosenthal, which is a perk of my job, if what he thinks. And he says he doesn't know. And he talks to more people than I do. So I don't feel like I should offer any extra degree of, like, false certainty if he doesn't have it. But it, it, it seems like they're very sincere in their, their efforts. I, I, If I was betting, I don't think that they're going to outbid the Philadelphia Phillies because the track record of doing that isn't there. And, and the Phillies have kind of already openly – uh, kind of declared on an ownership level that they're willing to go that level. But if I was just compare GMs, I would probably say that, you know, Han is probably a bit more risk-taking or, uh, you know, gutsy or willing to put himself out there than that front office, which it seems a lot more conservative and not really want to go into things beyond what their projections would tell them is prudent. So it's kind of a weird mixture of, of kind of difference in personalities or track records in front office and, and ownership between those two teams and the fact that you know at the end of the day Machado probably prefers to go to New York a kind of signature franchise that you know as much as the Sox have downplayed it the ability to immediately compete and immediately be on a World Series level and not having to doubt whether or not that's something that's coming down the road is probably an incentive for him that the White Sox have to overcome the fact that they could swoop in at any point if they really decided to kind of always gives the degree of uncertainty that the White Sox are going to be able to triumph and really have the best offer. So there's just so many kind of things that can come in and, and, and edge them out at the end of the day. So I still view it as more unlikely than likely, but it feels like a very real possibility. It feels like they're the realest pursuit of a top level free agent than I can really recall in the last decade. So we'll see. Please subscribe to The Athletic to read James's always awesome work covering the Chicago White Sox at theathletic.com. And you can follow James on Twitter. He's at J.R. Fegan. And as always, it's a pleasure to speak with James Fegan. And thanks to him. And coming up next on the Sox Machine podcast, we'll continue the conversation about the White Sox pursuit of Manny Machado as Jim Margulis joins me next on the Sox Machine podcast. A quick word from our sponsor. In one month, pitchers and catchers will report to Glendale, and you should follow the White Sox to Arizona for Cactus League spring training. Amazing weather and landscapes, exciting outdoor adventure, and incredible food. Arizona is the perfect home base for baseball fans. It's a -a one-of-a-kind spring training experience with all 10 stadiums within 50 miles of Phoenix. You can check out amazing restaurants at great craft breweries like Four Peaks, Angel's Trumpet Ale House, and Goldwater Brewery Company. Bring the kids along as Arizona is a fantastic destination for families with resorts and hotels offering plenty of fun like water parks, horseback rides, and activities for kids of all ages. 
And don't forget bucket list items like visiting the Grand Canyon, Monument Valley, Horseshoe Bend. And forget dealing with cabin fever in Chicago this winter. We just got that cold front. Nobody wants to spend all winter in Chicago when it's 15, 20 degrees outside. Instead, make your way to Arizona for spring training and plan your spring training getaway first at visitarizona.com slash spring training. Again, that's visitarizona.com slash spring training. So what has changed with the Manny Machado rumors and the White Sox pursuit of Machado? Well, on Wednesday night, sports reporter from the Dominican Republic, Hector Gomez, tweeted that his sources tell him that Manny Machado is deciding between two teams now, the Philadelphia Phillies and the Chicago White Sox. Unlike last week, when other sports reporters either denied what they actually said on their own podcast or try to downplay the rumors, there seems to be more backing up Gomez's tweet. Nobody can get a firm grasp on what the Yankees' interest is in Machado, as it's reported that they haven't made an offer yet, but they haven't completely backed out. But both Bob Nightingale of USA Today and 670 The Score's Bruce Levine have tweeted that the White Sox offer could be hovering $200 million? That's way short of what anyone was expecting Machado to sign. So let's try to make sense of what's out there and have an open conversation. And of course, the one to help keep our feet on the ground and also preventing those digging a hole is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Pretty soon, we may need to launch a uh, Manny Machado-centric podcast all about Manny. That's basically what it is. We could probably just rebrand this one, keep all the subscribers, and then launch an offshoot for the actual White Sox and see what that gets. But <laughs> no, it's it's tricky. And uh, yeah, the one thing, you know, you mentioned Hector Gomez, and I was trying to look back because I remember that name coming up before among reporters, and he was the guy who broke, at least among White Sox stories, the Wellington Castillo suspension. So he's somebody, and, and given that Castillo was an Oriole before he was a White Sox, you know, perhaps he does know something there and, and, and is a reputable source when he says that the Yankees are out but yeah it's uh it seems like it's narrowing in focus I guess that's my hope here yes and to start off with as far as the rumors I, I want to touch on the Yankees here Jonah Carey wrote a great story about the Yankees on CBS Sports I definitely recommend checking it out and you know the the, the summary of Carey's piece was about on how the Yankees are going in a different direction how they're spending money They are outspending other major league teams in a certain part of their roster, and that is the bullpen. The Yankees are spending way more money than any other major league baseball team on their bullpen, especially with the Colorado Rockies having some bullpen arms with their contract expiring like Adam Adovino. And that may be the direction that the Yankees go and next is sign Adam Adovino. And then the Yankees have... 55, maybe $60 million tied up in their payroll in just their bullpen, which seems a a, a bit insane on how roster construction works. Uh, Again, the White Sox before arbitration uh, salaries kick in, uh, their current, their current payroll is at 35, 44 million, between 35 to $44 million right now. So the Yankees will be spending more money on their bullpen than the White Sox are on their (laughs) entire roster. But because of what Jonah Carey was pointing out, Jim, might be the reason why the Yankees could be out on the Manny Machado sweepstakes just because they decided that we're going to make investments on a specific area of our team, and and that's the bullpen because 
They do have a roster that won 100 games last year. And yes, they did not win the American League East, but as we have learned in the postseason, it's all about the bullpens. So if you have the cash and you're willing to spend it on players, does it make sense for a team like the Yankees to spend that cash on a player like Adam Adovino and left-handed reliever Zach Britton than Manny Machado? So do you believe that the Yankees are truly out of this for Manny Machado? Maybe. Um... I do think there's a bit of overkill when it comes to just how much the Yankees are spending on the bullpen, but I think with Miguel Andujar there, I think that's maybe the one thing where you can say, well, you know, Andujar is very, he he had a great season at the plate, a really bad season in the field, probably not a real third baseman, but if they think there's any improvement there, maybe they can say, you know, we can get by with a below average uh, third baseman with maybe some help from Tulowitzki, you know, should uh, D.D. Gregorius come back. Um, but we really like Andujar's bats. Um, we like the rest of our infield. We don't need his defense maybe if we get a ton of strikeouts, and maybe that's what the bullpen is for, just reducing the amount of balls in play, reducing the amount of grounders in play, uh, especially, say, like among right-handed hitters, pulling the ball on the left side. You know, maybe they think that they can get by without good or even average third-base defense, and so Machado's a bit of a waste. And, yeah, I tweeted about this with... Uh, with the Yankees before that with uh, Robinson Cano, when he went to Seattle for the longest time during that process. And that was one that dragged out a couple months. Everybody thought, you know, Robinson Cano is just, you know, he can't resist New York and the Yankees need him. You know, he's, he's going to open up a huge hole at second base. They don't have a way to replace him. Uh, just dragging out and some negotiations and such, but you know, just the, the longer it dragged on and the Yankees wouldn't budge. And all of a sudden the Mariners became more serious and then he went to Seattle you know they just didn't come anywhere close to presenting a competitive offer based on you know I guess relative to what the Mariners offered so uh, they've done it before and I think it's maybe more of a new Steinbrenner thing you know the the Steinbrenner sons versus George uh, the old Steinbrenner would have uh, you know ponied up for the biggest star and you know been probably correct to do so in this case, it seems like the, uh, the Steinbrenner sons have a very different idea of, um, you know, how much to go over the luxury tax, where to allocate the money, um, not chasing stars, and you may be listening more to the front office. Um, whatever the case, you know, it seems like they've done it before with guys, and so I, it wouldn't surprise me if they did have a limit on Machado that was much lower than the other teams. All right, so the second thing about the Manny Machado sweepstakes that I'm keeping an eye on, Jim, is the Philadelphia Phillies' pursuit of Bryce Harper. Now, it has been widely publicized and reported that this upcoming Saturday, which is January 12th, the Philadelphia Phillies, their ownership, their front office, they're all flying out to Las Vegas to meet face-to-face with Bryce Harper. I don't know, Jim, if this is like a last-ditch effort by the Philadelphia Phillies to convince Bryce Harper to sign with them. As a White Sox fan, I hope that meeting is very successful for the Phillies uh, because I think that will take him out of the Manny Machado sweepstakes and they finally get their big fish in Bryce Harper. But with Bryce Harper, we're hearing a lot of rumors that the Washington Nationals are now willing to step up their efforts. They just signed, I believe, Ryan Dozier now to play second base for them. Uh, so they're still active as far as this offseason, and now there are some, you could hear it all the time in MLB Network, there are some experts that think that it's a real possibility that Bryce Harper could return to Washington. But that's Washington. I want to focus again on Philadelphia because that is the main competitor for the White Sox right now when it comes to Manny Machado. Jim, two parts here. One, how big of a deal is this meeting on Saturday? Not only as far as the Phillies' pursuit 
for Harper, but what it could possibly mean for Machado if the Phillies don't land Harper. And the second part is, let's say the Phillies are successful, Jim, and they do sign Harper. Does that automatically kick him out in the Machado sweepstakes? It would seem to, just based on the amount of money that's, uh, or, or the lack of money that's being thrown around. Uh, and just, you know, there doesn't seem to be any kind of murmurs or ideas. You know, nobody's taking the idea seriously that a team could land both. Even, you know, the White Sox were theoretically, theoretically in that position to where, they had the payroll space for both Machado and Harper, and that never really came up as a serious thing. So I would take it as it's one or the other because uh, it would seem that with one, unless there's some kind of crazy backloading or, or you know opt-outs to where they're time to where both players don't take up that much payroll space at the same time, the team expects to keep them. Um, you know, maybe that would be one way to do it, but otherwise, yeah, I don't see it. Um, it, it seems like it's a fairly big deal, and it kind of seems... Uh, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I was thinking back to the Machado meeting in Philadelphia, where he got stopped by the construction worker, and then they locked him out of the building, and had him, you know, kind of sitting with the media for like thirty odd seconds. Uh, and so maybe they want to avoid the same thing with Harper. But uh, the NL East arms race is pretty fascinating, and the and the Nationals do have a tendency to kind of play it cheap or or uh, assume that role, but then step up late in spending and 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 deliver money. And, you know, given that Harper has ties to, you know, the, it's the only team he's ever played for, um, I could see a situation where the Nationals offer him a fairly big contract with with some opt-outs and don't mind if he takes the opt-outs because they'll have him around for a couple more seasons. But ultimately, uh, you know, since they're not, uh, you know, I guess rolling in cash with like other teams when it comes to their TV deal, maybe, um, you know, they'd be happier keeping him for two years rather than eight so I, I can see it being a legit threat, and I can see the uh, the Phillies really trying to ward that off because I think with the other improvements Nationals have made, and they've made a lot of them, yeah, especially pitching, bullpen, uh, their out, you know, outfield looks great even without Harper, so to bring him in would be um, a coup, and then you have you know, Dozier joining. Uh, they've had a lot of depth and to a, to a roster that's already pretty good, so um, it would seem like Harper... Uh, getting him back would make them the clear favorites, even in a division that's, you know, pretty competitive top to bottom, except for maybe the Marlins. Yeah, if the Nationals do get Harper. My fear is that the Phillies, whatever they were going to offer to Harper, they're going to turn around and offer it to Machado, and that'll be the end of it. Like, the, the White Sox will not be able to outspend the Phillies. That That's my fear. I will tell you, listeners, that... I don't have anything to back that up yeah. uh, to say that the Phillies would actually offer more money than the White Sox because I don't know how much the White Sox are offering, obviously. We'll get to that topic in a moment. But that is my fear, Jim, that after that meeting on Saturday, the Phillies realize they're not going to land Bryce Harper, so they turn around and they dump a bunch of cash on Dan Lozano's desk and tell him, we want your client, Manny Machado. Maybe that's reason for Boris to wait, though. You know, if he's got two division rivals... Uh, squaring off against each other and the nationals are willing to spend more money than they said they're going to spend. Um, and, and, you know, that's kind of independent of the rest of the roster. I could see them waiting for Machado to sign whatever he signs. Then all of a sudden, if the Phillies are more desperate, you know, turn the screws on them and see if mm-hmm. uh, you know, get them to uh, bid head to head. So it seemed like, you know, it's in Harper's interest you know, if the Nationals' interest is true and if the Phillies are going all out for him to try to outlast Machado when it comes to actually signing, you know, pen to paper. 
so I understand that thought process, and it does make a lot of sense from a Scott Boris point of view. But if the Phillies decide they're going to be impatient, right, Jim? And they're just going to go ahead and sign Manny Machado, and they're going to tell Scott Boris, "Listen, we're out of patience. We're 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 going to sign Manny Machado, and we're moving on from your client." Uh, who's left then in the Bryce Harper sweepstakes? Is it just the Nationals then? That that's 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 what I'm. When it comes to the whole Bryce Harper thing, it, it, there it's just really muddy right now. It, it's really foggy. Whatever metaphor you want to use, it's just not as clear as what's going on with Manny Machado. So, I can see the White Sox still being in it. I don't think John Jay is, is uh, <laughs> no. getting in the way of a Bryce Harper signing. No. No, he is not. So, okay, let's talk cash. So let's talk about this $200 million, right? Okay, so to recap, my fear is that this meeting on Saturday will not go well for the Phillies with Harper, and they decide to back up the Brinks truck and offer a crazy amount of cash to Manny Machado. But the $200 million, okay, that is being tweeted out and – was I don't know what Nightingale or Levine were were trying to get with it. Uh, Bruce Levine's tweet was a little bit confusing because it 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 made it sound like the highest offer based on his tweet the White Sox have ever given to a player was Jose Abreu at sixty eight million, but that doesn't necessarily ring true because I thought we've heard Rick Hahn say that they have offered more money to players than what they signed Jose Abreu specifically Masahiro Tanaka. Yeah, and Tory Hunter was seventy-five, I believe. Yeah, so they before he got ninety from the Angels. Right, so they have offered more than what they signed Jose Abreu for. The highest that they've ever signed a free agent is Abreu's deal at sixty-eight million dollars. And when Levine says the White Sox offer is around one hundred thirty-two million more than what they quote in his tweet offered Abreu, it's easy math. That's two hundred million. Do you think a $200 million deal will net Manny Machado, Jim? Not unless it's like six years. That's I what I why. was thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, that's it, a little bit misleading where I guess it can be kind of, uh, I guess, you can open up a lot of conclusions when you only uh, introduce one of the terms, you know, dollars or years. <laughs> um, but no, it's... I anticipate whatever dollar value is thrown out by teams is going to be lower than what it actually comes to in, in the opposite for players. Whatever is, you know, comes out of the agent side is going to be higher. So when Machado says, you know, is gunning for 300 or 320 or whatever, and the White Sox say 200, probably going to be somewhere in the middle, maybe tilting towards the White Sox side or the team side based on how many years. Um, but right now I think 200 is probably just more of a, safe round number than an actual um you know hard figure or at least you know figure that's been tossed out there because you know it'd be weird to to pitch more and it'd be in i think ultimately it's kind of just like setting the expectations for your fans to where um you know if you sign say they the last number we hear uh in any kind of tweet or or a corroborated tweets is 200 and then all of a sudden they sign them for eight years and 225 or, or six years and like 210 or something like that, seven years, 225. Then all of a sudden think, oh, well, you know, they, they dug deep for him. They said this, but then, you know, when it came to getting the deal done, they rose up to the occasion. Let's all pat them on the back. So I think, you know, that's a little bit cynical, but also I think just the way you kind of manage expectations. 
uh, you, I think you, you set the bar low and then just, if you go over, nobody's going to like needle them and say like, Hey, you lied to us. <laughs> Everybody's just gonna be happy. It got done. So, uh, I expect the number from the team side to be a little bit lower than what he signs for 200 strikes me as really low unless, you know, seven or eight years is, uh, six years seems like just unreasonable. That puts Machado back in free agency when you know 34, uh, yeah, or 33, 34 when, um, younger you know, 32, 32, 32 yeah, 33. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. 33. So, but still, that's like a weird age for free agents. You know, maybe you can get some money back, but based on how they're getting paid now, uh, it seemed like you want to go into your, like your 35, just so then you can, you know, settle for two and three year contracts or whatever, and then ride it out till retirement. But it would seem like 35 would be the number to get to if you're Machado. Yeah, I'm I'm with you, man. I tweeted out what a eight year two hundred eighty million dollar deal get the job done, where you offer an opt out after the fourth year, in which if Machado wants to test free agency again, he could at the age of thirty, depending on what Nolan Arenado and Anthony Rondon signed for next year, right? Let's say Machado is the highest paid player until Bryce Harper signs. Okay, so Machado's the second highest paid player. Four years later, he's not even in the top five. And he's stellar for the White Sox in those four years, Jim. Let's say, okay, I want to test out again, right? I, I, I want to opt out. I'm going to opt out. I'm going to test free agency to get more money, right? Or try maybe try to get more money out of the White Sox. That that was my thinking, and I tweeted that out before this $200 million tweet came out. And, and I agree with you. If it's six years, $200 million, that's $33.3 million per season. It's not more than what Mike Trout is going to earn this year. I still think it puts Manny Machado in the top five. I think it definitely makes him the highest paid shortstop or third baseman in Major League Baseball. Uh, I, I'd be interested to see how the opt-outs would be worked in, in a six-year deal. Uh, but I, I guess, again, if my fear is to become reality, $200 million is pretty easy to beat, I think, for the Phillies, especially if they are really rooted in this Bryce Harper sweepstakes where we have heard the number 300 million has already been offered. Yeah. I, I just think that 200 million is the white Sox can afford it too. I mean, they have, they're paying nobody. Yes. They can go higher than that. I think it just really there when it comes to those numbers, it's partially what the circumstances have uh, dictated that the white Sox can get away with, you know, cause they said 200 and then, you know, other reporters and other, you know, other cities said like, uh, you know, 200 and Phillies have already offered 230 and nobody's saying that. So it seems like, you know, they're just kind of getting by at the lowest number they can get away with saying. And so I, I think there's definitely room for them to go above even before you get to the kind of the uh, having to put your faith in the White Sox spending more money than they ever have. I think, yeah, 230 is reasonable. Yeah, 250 reasonable. And, and mm-hmm. you know, after that, so you might get into kind of a, disagreements I, I think at least the robinson cano deal is kind of what's reasonable for everybody and after that you probably have to put a little bit more trust in the white Sox doing something completely unprecedented um but yeah there's room to improve and i think probably just given how few teams are in it and how many cities are not represented or how, how few cities are represented and just how many reporters are just kind of feeding from the same sources you know there's probably just not a whole lot of incentive to say any higher dollar figures right now. All right, so that's the money. In the end, if the White Sox do sign Machado, I am in the boat, Jim. It will be more for than $200 million. And mm-hmm. 
I could still, I could, out of the two numbers we've heard, seven years, 200 million, I think seven years is more realistic. I think the White Sox will go over $200 million if they do sign Manny Machado. And hopefully next time we chat, you know, it'd be nice to have an emergency podcast for a good thing for once, Jim. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, uh, uh, where we're not announcing a White Sox player, a star being traded away. No, this time the White Sox signing a star. Uh, it's been a while since we've done that. Uh, hopefully the White Sox do win the Manny Machado sweepstakes and something does happen soon. Now, there are reports that the Philadelphia Phillies and the White Sox, both teams, that if they do not sign Manny Machado, that both teams would seriously consider signing Mike Moustakis. So again, Jim, I believe we had this conversation last year. If the White Sox don't sign Manny Machado, okay, let's say my fear is reality. The Phillies win the sweepstakes. They get Machado. Do you think it makes sense for the White Sox to sign Mike Moustakis this time for the 2019 season after passing on him last year? Yeah, I, th- I think it does. I-, I don't need to see Yolmer Sanchez start a third you know, as much as he did. Um, I-, I think we saw his ceiling and that he's a really good utility infielder and stretched out as a starter, at least a third. You know, Maybe at second in the right infield, you can get away with uh, having him play 130 games, but... I think for the time being, you know, just it's one of those things where, you know, Moustakis is a starter third and Sanchez isn't. And I think, you know, um, when it came to Moustakis's athleticism, you know, he got some of it back last year, a year off the uh, ankle injury, you know, full regular offseason. It seemed like he got his sprint speed back. Uh, the defensive metrics improved. Um, you know, he handled a jump to leagues okay. So, yeah, I, I generally like him as a player and wouldn't mind seeing him, you know, anchor third base just to kind of see what the White Sox offense looks like with, you know, a, you know, that kind of bat in it, you know, that kind of left-handed power in it uh, and, and you know, having a credible major leaguer in it. Because I think, you know, if you go, you know, say truly Harper and Machado or bust and you don't really add to the lineup aside from maybe you know, Yonder Alonso and John Jay and, you know, they're okay, but they're not really... I'm skeptical as far as Alonzo's ability to handle DH and first base duties himself. He needs a right-handed caddy. I I just like uh, the idea of having one more major league bat in there, see how far away the team is from really contending when you have, hopefully, you know, further progression from Mancada and Lopez and Giolito and Anderson and and down the line. Yeah, I think if you have those guys improve and then have a whole bunch of, you know, blow replacement players around them, you kind of have a hard time putting them into context of just how, uh, yeah, how much help they need and, and just how much help uh, the White Sox should seek out. Well, that's the rumors around Manny Machado. So again, as the world turns around Manny, uh, hopefully, hopefully we get some resolution soon on the White Sox pursuit of Manny Machado. Hopefully they do sign Manny Machado. If they do, we'll have the emergency podcast and if they don't sign Manny Machado, well, I guess we could have the conversation again like we did last year about the White Sox signing Mike Moustakis. Now, that's the rumors. Let's talk about something that is actually going to be going through. And you may be noticing on Twitter right now that teams are settling with players that are under arbitration as the arbitration deadline is tomorrow for both teams and players to file what they believe should be their salary for the 2019 season, the White Sox don't have a lot of players up for arbitration, but they are all important players, starting with Jose Abreu, most recent uh, acquired via the Omar Neves trade, Alex Colome out of the bullpen, Carlos Rodon, and Yomer Sanchez. So, Jim, 
again, arbitration, like it happens every year, but last year was unique in the sense that Avisil Garcia and Yomer Sanchez took the White Sox to court uh, first time since Keith Folk, correct? Mm-hmm. And the White Sox lost. They lost both cases against Yomer Sanchez and Avisil Garcia. So what do you think will happen this time around in arbitration for these four players? Well, you know, it seems like Yomer's already done it once, so why not do it again? <laughs> he knows what's about, and you know there was some. You know, Rick Hahn was not pleased about going to arbitration. It sounded like um, that. You know, the way he described it was that, you know, the numbers they exchanged in conversations up until the deadline were uh, not the did not represent the numbers that the players filed under. Um, so it seems like you know that they were you know they thought they were being unreasonable. Then when the numbers are presented. It was more reasonable, and they ended up winning in, in, in the hearing. And, you know, based on Sanchez doing it before, and he seemed to bounce back from it okay and, and seemed to harbor no grudges. Seems like, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he handled it again. The other guys, you know, Carlos Rodon, you know, maybe having a full, you know, or I guess a fuller season, um, you know, entering the offseason healthy and everything like that. Maybe he feels better equipped to go to a hearing. Abreu settled his pretty quickly last year and for below the um, MLB trade rumors projection by quite a bit. So maybe he feels like there's uh, you know, more coming to him, but you know, based on last year and based on both of those guys going to arbitration, yeah, I guess you, you can't be surprised if it happens again. And I think it seems like a pattern across the league and more players are doing it and you know, there are going to be more hearings and maybe until the next CBA, this is just going to be a way for players to, establish you know their ground and 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 exercise leverage one of the few ways they can is this a possibility in which the white Sox and jose abreu find a way to avoid arbitration while also adding another year or we pass that uh, seems past it all although i feel like I feel like it's we're past, but this would be well, the deadline. Not necessarily. If people change um, their minds. They can agree to it. Just the way the White Sox do it is okay. that you know they have a deadline, and then they just say we're not talking about it anymore. But they could be packaged into a deal. So I think that might be the one way they avoid it is just saying, okay, you know, in the process of you know straightening out twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, we also got twenty nineteen done. So no arbitration hearing necessary. So that would be one way to do it, but. Based on Alonzo being around and, and being somebody who could theoretically cover first base if he is indeed more than Manny Machado's brother-in-law and can handle a position by himself, um, you know, maybe they're ready to move past him or be in a position where, you know, they let him explore free agency and see if, uh, you know, he's still the right fit afterwards. So um, I guess I'm just, uh, based on the way it hand- rolled out last year and surprised everybody, I guess I'm just... Uh, Try not to be surprised if everybody goes to arbitration this year. Well, it will be interesting to see on how many players do go to court and how many players win. I think the players did very well for themselves last year, so we'll see if that trend continues in 2019. The arbitration cases are going to be heard from February 1st to the 20th. So if they are heard in court, we've got another month possibly before knowing the final salaries for each of these players for the White Sox. Again, once we know what those final salaries are, visit us at SoxMachine.com and follow us on Twitter at SoxMachine. We'll be posting those results 
on both Twitter and writing stories about it when the news comes out and what the final salaries will be for Jose Abreu, Alex Colomay, Carlos Rodon, and Yomer Sanchez. So that will do it for this edition of the Sox Machine podcast. I want to thank our guest James Fegan of The Athletic for joining us to break down the John J. Kelvin Herrera signings. And thank you guys so much for listening. Again, if any news breaks over the weekend by the White Sox, we'll be covering it on SoxMachine.com. You can read our readings there. Again, follow us on Twitter at SoxMachine. And if Manny Machado does sign, you bet Jim and I will have an emergency podcast. So stay tuned. For that, speaking of socksmachine.com, Jim just wrote a PO Socks mailbag column for this week as you guys had some terrific questions for those that support us at Patreon. And if you would like to get access to that and like the opportunity to get access for future mailbags and enjoy our work and you want more content, go to patreon.com slash socksmachine to sign up. Packages start at just $2 a month and you get more from the podcast and writings on Sox Machine. It also helps support us in our efforts in covering the White Sox. So again, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. You guys are awesome. And for those that are just hearing about this for the first time, and if you are interested in signing up, go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up today. And get your questions in. <laughs> because uh, we, we, we've had, because of these rumors lasting into mid-January, we just have too much show, so uh, the questions will be handled in text form. So, got all weekend. If you, if you think of something, send it in, and uh, we'll get an answer for you the best that we can. And for those that just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to our show in a variety of ways. The obvious one, is, of course, is through iTunes for those that have iPhones and iPads. For those that don't have iPhones, that have Android devices, you can listen to us in Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.